I'd like you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. I've noticed on your website that you have uh, a little thing on the side of the sermons page that shows the different books of the Bible that people have preached from. And that there's no listing there for Jeremiah, <laughs> interestingly enough. It's one of the longer books of the Old Testament, a book that's basically dealing with judgment and the coming of destruction upon the city of Jerusalem and, and the coming exile that is about to happen. And through it, we meet Jeremiah trying to minister to a very rebellious, um, very antagonistic crowd of people who basically have turned their back on the Lord and all his teaching. And so poor Jeremiah has just been getting a deaf ear as far as all he's been preaching. It must have been very discouraging. So the Lord suggests to him a little field trip. Um, let's stand in for the reading of God's word. We're going to be read from um, Jeremiah 18 verses 1 through 6 and then one verse in Isaiah 64. But we're going to get into the Bible quite a bit this morning, so keep your Bibles handy. We're going to be jumping around a little bit. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good for the potter to do. And then in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. May the Lord add his blessing to the word as we consider it this morning. You may be seated. You know, Father's Day is only, what, about two, three weeks away? Um, time to start thinking about those texts. For those that are preachers, what are they going to preach on on Father's Day? Um, I know when I was in college, um, I'd go home in the summer, the Baptist church there, he always had a sermon for Mother's Day and for Father's Day, he used the same sermon every year. And uh, for Mother's Day, he always preached on how wonderful and virtuous mothers are. And on Father's Day, he came down, now their responsibility to raise their children right. <laughs> you know, it's uh, true that there's a real struggle Parenting children, and fathers especially, have a challenge. That's not too bad when they're little, you know, when they're two or three or, or the fabulous fours. Um, after you get through the terrible threes, you have the fabulous fours, you know. And, um, but when they get to be the teenagers, then it all gets difficult. Teenagers start to wrestle with their fathers and, and um, they, they talk back and they, they rebel oftentimes. And hopefully if you have teenagers that they're not too um, rebellious at this time and hopefully if you've had teenagers that the Lord has brought them through those times, but it's a difficult time. And usually um, on Father's Day, you know, we, we preach on a lot of times on Abba, Father, 
God is our Father, and we look at the fatherhood of God and speak about it in terms of our relationship to Him as sons and daughters of the Lord. And you notice my title's a little funny this morning. It's Abba Potter. And it goes right with the text because we are the clay, you are the potter, Father Abba Potter. And so as we turn to this text, there's a couple of things I want us to see. First of all, I want you to see that the Lord is our maker. He forms us and we are the clay he shapes. But then we want to get into what if the clay starts talking back. But first, let's look at the Look at what he's saying here about the, the Lord being our maker who forms us and us being the clay. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, go to the potter's house. Now, that basically meant going out of town. Out through the east gate, the potter's gate they called it. Um, there was an area there in the valley of Hinnon where, where they did a lot of pottery. And there were kilns there, there was lots of smoke. Uh, there was just lots of commotion going on. Uh, later on, it would be considered a valley of slaughter and compelled, compared to Gehenna. But for right now, it's just a very busy industrial area. And the Lord suggests to Jeremiah, let's go on a little field trip to the potter's house and see what's going on there. Now, in the biblical world, earthenware was very important. We basically just... Think about it in terms of pots for the plants. You got your plants out for the summer? Got the pots on the porch, you know, and, or maybe in the window, you know, the ceramic pots. But in biblical days, it was a major part of life. Everything they, they dealt with was mostly made out of earthenware. Bottles, bowls, pots. All kinds of pots, cooking pots and, and um, storage pots, um, pitchers, jars. I mean, they would put together very big jars to store grain or, or wine or water or oil in. Um, amazingly, they found some of those jars that have been laying, hiding away for a long, long time, and their stuff in them almost good. I don't know if I've heard about in the Southwest, they found jars, the corn still would grow after a thousand years or something. Um, they were used for transport. And if you were going to chip something, you would load it into ceramic pots or jars. And, and there's, uh, I heard recently about a shipwreck they found in the Mediterranean and all the jars were intact. I think it was carrying olives or something, I don't know, anyway. It was a very sophisticated industry. They even used them for other purposes. They would make lamps out of clay and they would have a little pinched part. You would dangle your wick over it, fill it with olive oil and light the wick and that was a lamp. Um, they stored documents in jars. You know the Dead Sea Scrolls? The only reason we have them is somebody put them in some jars and stuck them up in those caves by the Dead Sea and some kid throwing a rock broke one of them, took the documents to town, and they discovered, wow. Um, it's a good way to save documents. Wrap them up, put them in a jar in a dry place, and keep them for a long time. Ceramics was an important part of the life of people in Jesus' day. And so Jeremiah, even in Jeremiah's day too, 
Jeremiah goes to the potter's house to see what's happening. Now, the potter is there. The word for potter is basically the idea of molding or shaping or forming. The verbal form is found predominantly in the Old Testament. It's used about 60 times in the Old Testament, either referring to the potter or, what, or, or the shaper, the molder, the person that's doing the work, and, or what he's doing. And it basically has the idea of giving shape to something. To get, having an idea what you're going to do and, and starting to shape it and form it. The word is used for the Lord at creation. He shaped, he formed the creation. He took the, man, the, 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 the earth, the dust, and he created man. Uh, the, the word there is, is um, oftentimes used um, in Isaiah in particular. And we're going to get into a couple of passages in Isaiah as we go on. But keep in mind that a potter is a person who shapes something with a plan in mind. And then there's the clay. Now the clay in the Holy Land was hard and it was also oftentimes mixed with impurities. Now, if you, anybody do pottery? Probably not. Oh, somebody does pottery, okay. Several people do pottery. Where do you get your clay? You go to a shop, you get a bag of clay, it's all ready for you, there you go. I mean, I don't know whether you use a wheel or whether you roll it into a coil and coil it up or whether you shape it with your thumbs and, and stuff. But in the biblical days, you'd have to take that hard clay and somehow mix it with water and you would have to wedge it. And they would do it with their feet. They would put the clay in a vat or something like that in the water and they would, they would veg it. Now what is, it's not kneading, it's vegging. Kneading is what you do with bread. When you're doing that, you're trying to put bubbles into the bread, right? So it will rise and the bubbles will be there. But with clay, you don't want the bubbles in the earthenware. You don't want the impurities there because when you put it in the kiln, those bubbles may explode or the impurities might cause, you know, the thing to come out imperfect. And so the potter does his work. In the book of, Ecclesi in the book of Ecclesiasticus, which is one of the apocryphal books, it describes the work of the potter. It says, so it is with the potter sitting in his labor, revolving the wheel with his feet. They would sit and they would spin the wheel with their feet and then their hands would be shaping the um, clay. He's always concerned for his products and turns them out in quantity. With his hands he molds the clay and with his feet he softens it. His care is for proper coloring and he keeps watch on the fire of his kiln. Because after you've got the thing put together, I mean, just the dry clay pot is not going to last very long. So they put it in a kiln. They heat it very hot. And the clay turns into the ceramic. And so there's that process, first of all, of shaping and forming and then the, putting it in the fire and bringing it to completion. Sometimes you open up the kiln and you're not quite pleased. <laughs> Other times you are. 
The picture we have here is, Jeremiah, go to the potter's house and see what he's doing. And this is the relationship between me and my people. I am the potter, you are the clay. I am the one who shapes. I am the one who forms. You are the ones who need to be shaped and formed. And that process means that I'm going to be working on you. I'm going to be shaking. First, I have to get the clay ready, and then I have to go through the process of, of creating the pot, and then there's even the fires of the kiln to bring it to completion. The scripture says very often that we are the clay. In, Jer in Job, for example, chapter 10, it says that you molded me like clay. When you look at this illustration, this um, little field trip that Jeremiah has been taken on, the teaching is very clear. I am the one who molds my people. I am the one who shapes them. I'm the one who created them. David says in Psalm 139, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every day of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God is the Father, the potter. We are the clay. A couple things in application here. As the clay must be refined, this I got out of some commentary, so too must the Christian be refined before he can be shaped into a useful vessel by the master potter. Impurities have to be removed, tempering agents added. The Christian has to be softened and wedged by God's hands of providence. After the master potter has formed and shaped the Christian according to his will and pleasure, he must then be tried by fire in order to be strengthened for the function that God wishes him to perform. We have to learn to be content with the fact that God has made us, each one of us, unique. Just think about it. It's not a factory here. God's not churning them out, you know, through a machine like they do Tupperware or stainless steel dishes and all the other things that you have. It's an intricate process, one by one of each one. The, the Bible teaches us that God makes each one of us unique in his sight. He has an idea of who we are and what we are and what our purpose will be. God is our Father. We are the clay. God is our maker who forms and shapes us for his purposes, for his glory and praise. But what if the clay starts talking back? Okay, let's turn first to Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah chapter 45, we have another one of these passages that refers to the potter and the clay. Beginning at verse 9. Well, actually, I'm going to move. Oh, yeah. 
I'll start at nine. You might notice that part of this came out of our um, pastoral prayer this morning. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him a clay among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? What are you doing? The clay says. And the potter goes, what? <laughs> Talking back to me? <laughs> what are you doing? I am making a pot. What do you mean you're making a pot? What do you think you're doing? Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Actually, the word there for pots is more oftentimes translated as sherds. You know what sherds are? Well, sherds are what happen when your pot is all broken into pieces and you got a pile of broken pieces. You know, if you leave a pot out in the, out in the yard with um, dirt in it and stuff like that, goes through winter, moisture in that thing, it breaks into pieces. And so here we have a picture of a bunch of broken pieces of, of pot. I mean, they're broken. What are you doing? Shall he who strives with him who formed him say these kind of things? Does the clay say to whoever forms him, where are my handles? Well, you don't need any handles. You're going to be a, something that doesn't need handles. Well, the point is that God has a purpose. And oftentimes humanity rebels and rejects against these very things. It denies the fact that he's in charge, that he is the potter, that he is the one who has created us and created us as we are. You know, this is very common especially among teenagers, to say something like, did I ask to be born like this? Who am I? Why am I? They struggle with who they are, their identity. It's, a, it's oftentimes a real crisis. Am I just a product of DNA? Or my family and my social environment? Or luck? Do I have any meaning? And oftentimes, along with this, there are body image issues. All of a sudden, the hair changes colors. And um, they have a hard time going to school because they don't have the right thing to wear. Uh, all sorts of things like this. This, 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 this wrestling with yourself. Why am I like this? Um, what are you doing with me? Why was I put in this family? Why is my skin the color it is? Why am I a male or female? You know, gender issues are a big issue right now in our culture. God made man and woman. And oftentimes we find people that just fight against this. What are you doing? We are not the products 
of impersonal determinism. We're not accidents. We're not mass-produced. We're not stamped out by machine. God makes the DNA of every person unique. And this is quite interesting because if you've been following what's happening with DNA and stuff, they can find people that committed crimes just by looking at their DNA because everyone has a very unique pattern. And uh, like snowflakes, they say no two snowflakes are alike. Well, no two people are alike either. God creates us as individuals and he has a purpose and place for each one of them. We don't choose our parents. We don't choose the color of our skin. We don't choose our physical condition. Oftentimes these things are things we wrestle with, but God does not make mistakes. He's got a purpose. And you may not be happy with what you see in yourself, but God is happy with what he has made and you need to trust him that he has done the right thing in your life. Well, the clay has still got some things to say. For example, in Romans chapter 9, So we want to turn to Romans chapter 9. Verses 20 and through 26. Well, let's begin with verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show forth his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Basically what we're doing this morning is we're looking at the clay in terms of three things, creation, fall, and redemption. And we've already looked at creation, how God has created us for special, or special purpose. And now we're looking at fallen man because all of us have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all turned our back on God. We're all like the clay speaking back to God, arguing with him about what he is doing. And Paul, as he brings this out, he brings out this illustration of the clay speaking to the potter. 
Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Why have you made me like this? The problem of evil is a very serious one. In Isaiah chapter 64, and I will get into that in a moment, but I will quickly flip my page so I can read it. Um, he says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are polluted like polluted garments. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We'll get back to that passage in a moment. But here's the potter. And he's busy at work and he's going to make this pot for the front porch. It's going to be really glazed, pretty. It's going to have some beautiful flowers in it. But this other pot over here is going out back and it's going to be a trash can. And one has a purpose, the other has a purpose. And so in this whole illustration, and I don't want to get too tied up in the illustration, but the idea is the fact that God makes all and some in their rebellion are meant for destruction because they refuse to respond to the offer of his grace. And so Paul speaks here about those vessels of wrath, those pots that are basically to be thrown out. And he has two illustrations in this passage that kind of speak to this whole thing because he also talks about the vessels of mercy. So the first illustration is Pharaoh. You know the story of Pharaoh? Did anybody watch the Ten Commandments over Easter on TV? And, and that, here's Pharaoh. And God comes to him through Moses and says, let my people go, and absolutely not, he says. Well, how about a couple pandemics? Nope. Not going to go. How about a couple more pandemics? How about some frogs? How about some flies? How about some sick cows? How about um, the Nile River changing into blood? Will that convince you to let them go? Absolutely not. How about I strike the firstborn throughout the land and finally Pharaoh relents for a moment and says to Moses, get your people out of here. But then he turns around and goes after him. Was God justified in condemning Pharaoh to the, to the depths of the Red Sea for destruction? He had many opportunities to respond to God's word and he turned his back on every single one of them. Obviously, God is right in bringing destruction to Pharaoh. But then there's this other illustration that's in this passage. It's not quite as obvious, but there's Hosea. You remember the story of Hosea? Hosea was a prophet, and the Lord told him to go and marry the worst possible woman you could find, a hooker. And she's not going to be a faithful wife either. 
Uh, yes, Lord, I guess since you said I'll do this. And so he takes Gomer. Gomer was her name. And he marries her and she is just, she's like so many stories we hear about on the news and other things. Just a terrible basket case. Trouble. And just one crisis after another. And she has a, some children. The first one they named Jezreel because God is going to destroy the people of Israel in the north through Assyria, meant for destruction. Well, a second child is born, and um, the child is given the name, not my people. Odd name, you know, but the Lord said, so the name is given. And... Um, then there's a third child. I got it mixed up here. The first, second child was no mercy. No mercy. The third one was not my people. Well, along with this, Hosea is commanded again and again to take her back, to take her back, to woo her, to win her over, even in her rebellion, in her resistance with his love. And finally, she turns back Hosea is forgiven and restored and the Lord announces the children's names are getting changed where before there was no mercy now there's mercy and we where before they were not my people now they are my people God can take the most rebellious sinner and through his grace and through his mercy and through his power remold them into his own mercy and grace, vessels of mercy. And so we see here in, in Paul, he says here, um, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. These are not wonderful people. These are people that are saved by grace. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So, so on one hand, we have vessels of destruction like Pharaoh. On the other hand, we have vessels of mercy like Gomer. And we find ourselves in there at the same place. Are we like a Pharaoh who, went, no matter how much God offers mercy to us, we turn and reject it? Or are we like Gomer who, who resist and resist, but finally accept what God offers in his love and mercy? So the God, the Father, the potter, bears with our sinful rebellion with patience. You know, we oftentimes wish God would act sooner. You know, deal with this issue. Why don't you deal with the corruption? Why don't you deal with the politicians? Why don't you deal with, with the, um, the wickedness that's going on around the world, the famine, the, the suffering? God is patient allowing time for his gospel to do its work. I don't want to get too tied down with this concept because we have one more case in which the clay is talking back to the potter. In Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29, verses 13 to 16.
New Bibles are hard to turn pages. <laughs> and the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn everything upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? He did not make me. He has no right over me. He's not my maker. He doesn't know anything. This is an illustration of the fact that there are many in this secular world that totally reject the whole idea of God being their creator. Secularism. Our culture has basically assumed that God is not an operative part of things. We're, we're simply a product of whatever form of evolution or, or determination or whatever else causes us to exist. But we were not made with a purpose. We have no responsibility to a God who has given his, his word, his commandments, who has laid out his purposes for us. We're like all those vessels of destruction that we already talked about. Um, in fact, you know, we're the ones that have the wisdom. We got all kinds of smart people. We got scientists. We got professors. Uh, we got a few magicians, a couple con men. Uh, we got a lot of handy people that help us, you know, in sorting things out, and that's why everything is going so great right now. Everything's just wonderful and hucky-dory, right? Um, we have all the smarts we need to make life great. We don't need God. We don't see Him at work. Where is He? Just show me. Well, you know, the Scriptures have something to say about that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it's a wisdom of this, it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age, this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God reveals to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Scriptures speak about the hidden knowledge of God. The fact that God works in a way that hides himself. In Isaiah chapter 45, it says, Truly you're a God who hides himself, O God the Savior. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel against together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it? Was it not I, the Lord? There's no other God before me. 
a righteous God and a Savior, none besides me, turn to me and be saved. But the work of God is, is hidden in the witness of evangelists and missionaries, in the, in the moments of transformation, people's lives when they come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and they begin the process of being molded into the very image of Christ. And we already talked about that a little bit ago, you know, you take the clay, you got to shape it, you got to put it, purify it, you got to put it in the fire. God does this in our lives, preparing us for an even greater glory as we fulfill the purposes he has for us. Well, in that day, Isaiah 29, it, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy from the Lord. The poor among mankind will exult in the Holy One of Israel, for the ruthless will come to nothing. The scoffers cease, and who, all those who watch to do evil shall be cut off. The third picture that I'm giving you is what if the clay talks back to its maker is that God's wonderful redemption just absolutely confounds the so-called wise in the world. He did not make me. He knows nothing. Well, you really don't know anything because you don't see what God is doing. If the clay talks back to its maker, is it justified in what it says? You didn't make me. Why did you make me like this? What's your purpose for me? I mean, you know, I can do my own thing. I can be whoever I want to be. But God says he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. For in the wisdom of, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God is at work, and it's through the gospel. And the gospel is reaching out and taking the vessels and redoing them. Now, going back for a moment to Jeremiah where we started, we go on the field trip, we see the potter at work, and what happens? The potter's making the clay thing and it doesn't please him. So what does he do? He remakes it. And this is what the gospel is all about. God made us, but we have like the clay spoken back against him, we've rejected him, we've, we've turned our back on what he teaches us, we've tried to go our own ways, and it just does not work because we are what he made us, not what we want to be. But the gospel says that well, even in our rejection, he provides a means of restoration. God created we fell, God restores, and it's through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And 
This is not the end of things. We still look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and seeing the fullness of the glory. Because why did God make us? To be happy, to be content, to live forever. He made us for His glory. And sometimes He is glorified as we go through a very rough patch of life. Sometimes we will not, uh, many will not see his glory until they're raised from the grave. But God has a purpose, and he made his people for that purpose. Well, I've gone on a little bit long on this parable of Scripture. Looks like a little bit too long. Us preachers, you know, we don't look at the clock. But I hope you've got something from the Word of God this morning that God is at work in your life, shaping you, dealing with your resistance and your sin, but also restoring you through His grace, through Christ. And we can cry out to Him, Abba, Potter. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for the Word of, that You've given us this morning. We pray, Lord, you'll help us think about these things, that you'll help us to look at ourselves and consider what you have made us and what purpose you have for us, and most of all, how we can bring glory to your name. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to be responsive to what you speak to us through your word, and that, Father, we will not follow the counsels of the world, but rather we will follow in the path that you've laid out before us through Jesus Christ and your spirit. Amen.